Hello out there and welcome to the Fantasy World Order Fantasy Baseball Podcast. This is Pat Donovan recording at night on December 6, 2018. And oh man, has the hot stove heated up. I literally was going to just do my Deep Sleeper team episode and the news has poured on and on and on over the last few days. Uh, I'm going to cover that as well and then identify some of my favorite deep sleepers. So without further ado, let's get into it. Paul Goldschmidt was traded to St. Louis. Uh, Year over year, I think it's probably a neutral move. The ballparks are pretty similar according to park factors. Of course, we only have the one year of data in Arizona after the Humidor, so that's not quite sticky yet. But I think we have a pretty good feel for the fact that that park's going to play sort of neutral to a pitcher's park and St. Louis plays like a pitcher's park. But St. Louis does seem to be a location where players thrive in their second acts of their careers. Uh, Matt Holiday immediately comes to mind. After a really rough first month, things settled down for Goldie and he put up a really quality season. 33 bombs, 7 steals, 290 batting average, career high hard contact rate of 46% and a solid batted ball mix for both power and average. I really question the doubters here because, uh, to me, Goldschmidt was the player that he's been uh, for most of last year. Uh, granted, the speed was down a little bit, but even if you're getting you know, high single digits to low double digits in steals at first base when speed is so scarce, it's, it's a really big bonus. Unless you don't think he's going to run at all, uh, I don't quite understand how he's suddenly... Uh, a second to third round pick, which is where he's going. For me, he's still in the first round. He's towards the back end of it, but I have absolutely no problem taking Goldschmidt late in the late in the first or early in the second. Uh, I'm totally in on him. I think that people are making a mistake by downgrading him this much. I mean, I've seen him go behind Freddie Freeman, and I think he's behind Freeman in the ADP right now. And that's something that I really don't understand. Uh, you know, I think Freeman is sort of the poor man's Goldschmidt, not the other way around. Goldschmidt has a better track record for power. He's got a better track record for speed. They're both hit for a high average. They're both going to be in good lineups in good situations to produce runs. So, I mean, I, I don't quite understand it when it comes to those two positionally, but even in the broader spectrum, I still think that Paul Goldschmidt's a first-round pick. So, uh, Luke Weaver and Carson Kelly and Andrew Young are going to Arizona. For our purposes, we're just going to talk about Weaver and Kelly. After going inside the top 30 last year among starting pitchers, Weaver has been written off in the early ADP, going as SP 90+, but undoubtedly has something, that has something to do with not being sure about the role that he was in in St. Louis. In Arizona, with the humidor and a strong foundation of good command, solid fastball velocity, and a plus change, I could see a strong rebound year for Weaver. I mean, this could be the case where maybe we were too high on him last year and now we're going to be too low on him this year after a down year. With the role solidified, I moved him up to about the 80th 80th starting pitcher. He's sort of in the Jake Junis zone, uh, which is guys that have one or two pitches and really need a third to take a step forward. But, you know, with some luck, those two pitches could could possibly carry them. Uh, And then in terms of Carson Kelly, he's the classic example of why dynasty owners should probably avoid investing in catching prospects. 
but I'm not ready to write him off yet. The sample is incredibly small at the major league level. Uh, if Arizona commits, there is some potential that he volumes his way into like a top 15 type season, maybe even top 12 if catcher is as bad as it was last year. He has a pretty solid foundation in plate skills with the ability to take a walk. He really needs to tick the power up to about 15 homers per year in order to reach that sort of level. But, I mean, his power grades are right around league average, which is usually about 15 to 17 homers. So he's got a shot if he gets the playing time. The next biggest move, or, or one of one in the series of big moves that has gone down, was Patrick Corbin signing to Washington. Uh, overall, I think it's a positive move for Corbin, especially when most of us had assumed he would end up in Yankee Stadium. Washington is a bit of a surprise. Washington plays a little bit like post-Humidor Arizona, so I think the ballpark effect is null. Uh, of course, as I said with Goldschmidt, the Arizona ballpark... It isn't sticky yet. I think we can feel that it's going to play neutral, but you know, it, it, it's just a caveat that I think we have to throw in there. Uh, the defense is worse in Washington, but I'm not tell- terribly worried about that with the amount of swing and miss Corbin gets. I actually moved Corbin up a couple of spots from 18 to 15 in my rankings, so now I'm pretty much in line with where he is ADP-wise. I did some additional research. I know that Corbin's velocity rebounded, but I didn't realize that it was all the way back up in September. I thought that he went from 89 to right around 90, 91. He was back up over 92 in September, uh, which is promising. And if he's throwing 92 with that slider in the low 80s and the slow curve, that's going to be a really nice package, and it's going to be very difficult for hitters to hit him. I still worry about the injuries, but it's it's funny because you, know, you think of Patrick Corbin as this pitcher with this extensive injury history. Yes, he's had the Tommy John. But he's thrown 155 innings, 189 innings, and 200 last year. Uh, There's not many pitchers that have that sort of three-year track record. And even if you got 160 innings out of him, you're looking at basically James Paxton. So, I mean, that's where I've got him in terms of the range of pitchers. He's sort of in that uh, injury-prone cluster with Paxton and Strasburg. I think those guys belong together. But, you know, I say this time and time again about starting pitching. They're all injury risks, and I think that you need to keep that in mind. And I do think that if somebody gets down on Corbin to the point where they're he's in that 20 to 25 range, they're probably too low on him. The next big move, Cano, Diaz, and Cash to the Mets for Jay Bruce, Anthony Swarzak, Jared Kelenic, Justin Dunn. And Gerson Bautista, a mouthful of a deal. So Robbie Cano, the move is probably neutral year over year. So that means Seattle last year, their offense is a reasonable approximation of what I think the Met offense is going to be. Uh, The suspension sort of clouds Cano's 2018, but his pace looks an awful lot like an Anthony Rendon, Scooter Jeanette, Nick Castellanos type season. Uh, If you were to double his line because he played about half the year, He's a 20-homer bat with approximately 180 runs-plus RBIs and a 300-plus average. Among qualifiers, there were only 16 that hit 300 or better. That's it. And there were five players in the Major League Baseball that hit 20 or more homers, had 85 runs, 85 RBIs, and hit over 300. So Cano presents a sort of unique package that I think is kind of underappreciated. Now, granted, he is 36, so, I mean, it is possible that he does start to slow down. But there is no indication 
in the underlying data that says he's going to slow down. He posted a career high, hard contact rate. The batted ball data looked like a reasonable approximation of what Cano has generally been during the course of his career. So I'm buying Cano because I think that that sort of suspension cloud tends to turn people off or, you know, people are lazy. They only look at the numbers of games played or they're just looking straight at his stat line and not paying attention to the fact that, uh, you know, he's only played 80 games. So that's why he's only got 10 homers. Um, You know, those sort of things can happen and sort of lead to an inefficiency in terms of where a player ends up in the minds of people. And that plus he's 36, you know, nobody wants the old guy. Everybody wants the shiny new toy. He's going to be at the heart of an above average lineup. His hard contact rate was extremely encouraging, as I mentioned, and he's getting flat out hit. He's one of the best hitters of, of the generation. So, I mean, I'm not doubting it at all. I'm in, and, you know, I think this is the perfect type of player to pair with, if you're going to spend on the high end and Alberto Mondesi, or if you're going to go a little bit on the low end, as I've mentioned before, and I have to mention him on every single podcast, Jonathan VR, uh, you know, he's sort of that perfect complimentary piece where he's going to give you the average. He's going to give you more power than those guys. And together you kind of end up with sort of a like 15 to 20 Homer, 20 steel, 275, you know, like two assets that are like that. You know, 20 homers, 20 steals, 275 in the middle infield, which is a really, really nice package. And he provides some solid floor for those guys to help make up for their batting average downside. So Edwin Diaz, obviously coming off a fantastic year. Uh, As the Mets closer, I think he'll be good. I I wouldn't pay the price for an elite closer because I never do. Uh, It's just not a a strategy for me that I've ever taken or adopted. Uh, The position is too volatile year to year for me. Diaz struggled as recently as 2017, so it's within the range of outcomes that he's outside the top 10 at closer, even though he's going off the board first or second. If you want to invest, he's still extremely high end, and the K rate is fantastic, and I don't think that there's going to be any issue with him getting the opportunities um, for what should be a pretty decent Mets team. Jay Bruce, I think, is the big winner from a fantasy perspective because his value shifts from sort of a limbo where he may or may not have a job to a situation where he's going to get full-time playing time, potentially at DH, which is great because that will help keep him healthy. And Bruce is kind of surprisingly only 31 years old. Uh, I think that everyone sort of gets the impression that he's closer to Cano's age, and it's probably because he's got a lot of miles on him. Uh, But he's really not that old, so I don't think a return to form is out of the question, especially if he's DHing and, you know, less likely to get hurt. Or, you know, maybe Seattle sticks him at first base, too. And and there, I think he would also be less likely to get hurt than if he's playing the outfield. He's not a strikeout prone as people make him out to be. He's kept a good walk rate. Bruce is also entirely free in terms of ADP. You can get him if you want him. Uh, and I think he could be a cheap source of 30 bombs in the middle of a lineup that's still got some pieces. They've got Malik Smith there. They've got D. Gordon still. They've got Mitch Haniger. Uh, Carlos Santana's on the team right now. We don't know how many of those guys are going to be there. Kyle Seeger's also there. So, I mean, it's not great, but it's also not devoid of talent. And even if Hanniger was to move on, for instance, because that's that's really their last big piece, it, it's still a, enough of a functional lineup that somebody hitting three or four in that lineup can drive in, you know, 85 or so runs if they're going to hit high 20s to low 30s bombs. And Bruce has the potential to do that. Swarzak with Nicasio going to the Phils in the Segura trade. 
I think he looks like the best bet to inherit the closer role in Seattle because he's cost-controlled and on a one-year deal. So Seattle may want to try to use the saves to pump his value. In today's day and age, I don't know how much effect that really has, but it seems to be a common course of action. And at minimum, it keeps Seattle's relievers that are more controllable cheaper for longer if Swarzak is getting the saves. Uh, Swarzak was terrible last year, but he struggled through injuries throughout the year. And he's the perfect example of the volatility that I was talking about when I was mentioning Diaz. Um, I could easily see him healthy, bounce back to 2017 levels, or, you know, go completely the other way and end up being a mop-up man by midseason. The range of outcomes are huge when it comes to Sorzak. Um, and if reports collaborate with my guess that he's first up in saves for, for Seattle, I'm going to own a few shares just on the off chance that he returns to his 2017 form. Because if he does and he's getting the saves, that's going to make him a steal on draft day. As far as the prospects go, Kalenic, uh, I was very disappointed that he went. I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly. If I'm butchering it, I apologize. Uh, but he did look like a real player, sort of that rare high ceiling, high floor type of prospect. Um, you know, at minimum, it looks like he's going to be a major league regular, at least from, you know, the scouts takes, from my own eyes, from various projections that I've seen. At 19, he's probably not going to see the show until 2020, so he's a ways out, which is probably why he's in this deal. And I think even that would be aggressive considering the fact that he's only 19 and hasn't played above A-ball yet. Uh, I don't even think he's played in A-ball, excuse me, so let me let me just clarify that. Uh, Dunn had a very nice bounce-back year after a disappointing debut season. Highly athletic with a good slider and fastball. He's going to need a step-up in command or a third pitch to make it work as a starter. There's a chance he could sniff the majors this year. And Batista is a is a quality relief arm. I don't think he's a high-end relief arm. Um, but, you know, he's a nice piece that probably has a decent floor as a reliever. So I mentioned Segura to the Phils. Uh, this trade included Carlos Santana and J.P. Crawford going to the Mariners. Uh, Segura, it's a nice upgrade year over year because the Phillies lineup, I expect, is going to add another big addition, be it Bryce Harper, be it Manny Machado, be it another piece that uh, maybe they acquire via trade. Uh, I think that the lineup is going to be better, and it stands to be better than Seattle's last year if they do uh, make that expected upgrade. So even without that sort of lineup upgrade, he the park is a significant upgrade for Segura. Uh, the spray chart with the Phillies home park overlay is very encouraging for a potential power boost, and it's supported by the park factors, a 114 home run park factor for right-handed hitters for Philadelphia and 103 for Seattle. So he's going from an average park to an above-average park for right-handed power. And remember, in Arizona, Segura hit 20 bombs with a 119 park factor for right-handers. So this could mean a jump into mid- or upper-teens power for Segura. Combine that with a good average and the ability to swipe 20-plus bags, which he's done five consecutive seasons, Segura is a really nice player at the top of that Phillies lineup. Um, he's probably going to hit two uh, or one, depending on how they want to work it with Cesar Hernandez, if he's still there, uh, which I expect he will be. And that's a nice one-two punch. So you're either going to see Segura as the prime run scorer, or, or I would prefer if he hits two, because then he gets the opportunity to drive in Segura and then be driven in himself. Um, but I'm, I'm all in on Segura this year again. I think that he's an underappreciated asset. Again, batting average I know is fluky year to year. But I think Segura's got a pretty safe floor there. You know, at worst, I think he's maybe like a 275 guy with his current skill set. I know he's had years before where he's been below that. 
but I, I feel pretty safe taking Gene Segura that I'm going to end up with an asset that's at least like a 275, 12 homers, 20 steal guy. And that might not be the sexiest floor ever, but I think there's enough upside there to make the pick worthwhile. Carlos Santana is the poster child for why you simply can't rely on the park overlay. Uh, as we know from last year, when uh, Joe and I were going nuts over him in Philadelphia, he disappointed with just 24 bombs, a 229 batting average, 352 OBP, and a 414 slash. Now, that 229 average came with a career low 231 Babbitt, and that's about 30 points off his career average. So you can probably expect the average to bounce back a bit. But Seattle is a neutral home run park, and it's tougher on lefties, which is where switch hitting Santana primarily derives his power from. Uh, He's still posting an excellent walk rate at 16%, and he strikes out less than he walks uh, at 13%. Uh, Santana's a good bet in leagues with an OBP component uh, or leagues that might penalize for strikeouts, such as points leagues, uh, if that is within your scoring system. But in standard leagues, he's like a 250 hitter with 25-30 homers and good run production remarkably similar yet more expensive than Jay Bruce. Now, there is the potential that Santana is dealt again. Um, The reports are is that DePoto has had teams contact him regarding Santana. So I think we need to see where he ends up. If he ends up in a more hitter-friendly situation, I think that analysis could change. But if he's on Seattle, uh, I'm going to push him down my board uh, quite a bit. And then J.P. Crawford, despite the pedigree, Crawford has shown little at the MLB level. But now, with health provided, Crawford is going to receive a full-time shot in Seattle. He has displayed the ability to take a walk throughout his minor league career, but the strikeout rate has ticked up, albeit in a small major league sample. He's got some authority issues, too. Low hard contact, lots of soft contact, a history of poor BABIPs in the minors, too. So even if the strikeouts aren't an issue, I wouldn't, ex- I, and I wouldn't expect more than around 20%, which is not that bad. The Babbitt might cap the average at around 270, with 250 probably being the expectation. So you're seeing sort of a similar batted ball Babbitt problem that Santana has. Not quite as bad because Crawford can probably leg out a few infield singles that Santana can't. But it is something to keep in mind uh, that the batting average upside is probably capped here. He's got some power. He's got some speed. But he's going to need to turn the corner somewhere to be an asset in 12-team mixers, in my opinion. He has to reduce the K rate or up the power, or run more. Uh, There's got to be something that changes in his offensive profile that takes him from being a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none to to something more than that to be viable in a 12-team mixer. And as of right now, I just don't see it. But it could come with time. He's excellent defensively, so he's going to stay in the lineup when he's healthy. And if he does that, you know, he might improve as he goes and sort of find his way uh, into a better you know, offensive player. Nate Ovaldi signed with Boston. Uh, Nate goes back to Beantown where he had that special run in the postseason. He was better than I remembered during the regular season with Boston and was obviously fantastic in the playoffs. He was one of the primary stories. Uh, His arsenal is one that's developed over time. When he went to the Yankees, he added the splitter. That was the first part of the equation to go with the fastball. Last year, he started throwing the fastball more up in the zone he de-emphasized it a little bit in terms of its usage, incorporated a cutter that really made everything work. I think he could repeat last year and maybe even be a little bit better, 3-5, 3-6 ERA type season. But I don't know that there's much more than that. Uh, and he's not a guy that's going to have the strikeouts that, you know, 
you need to make that profile special. I mean, he's like an eight and a half guy at best. So if he's eight and a half K per nine guy with with a good walk rate and a three five ERA, he's kind of looking a little bit like Kyle Hendricks, which isn't bad. It's just it lacks for upside, and I don't think he's got you know that Kyle Hendricks sub three ERA season in him. Um, I don't think he's that good of a, a pure pitcher. I suspect he's going to be overpriced. He's currently at SP 47. That's not terrible, but it's sort of on the fringe where I become uncomfortable considering both health and performance track record. And this is really looking ahead. I suspect he's going to be closer to SP 40 or maybe even inside the top 40 by the time March rolls around. I, I, I think he's going to be a guy that's going to have some helium. So I'm not out yet, but I'm just anticipating that I will be come March because I expect that he'll rise. Uh, Jonathan Scope signed with Minnesota after being non-tendered by Milwaukee. It's a one-year pillow deal. Um, you've heard my stance on Scope before. I'm not going to go back over it. He's an extremely Babbitt-dependent player. He's got poor batted ball authority and batted ball profile. He's got poor plate discipline. He's got no patience. He, he's the typical type of player that you hear that I do not like um, You know because it's just... I don't like players that swing at bad pitches, and that's what Scoop does. So I don't want to. I don't want to go over that all over again. Um, now, in some formats, he might have shortstop eligibility. I, I think it's ten games played or ten games started formats. He'll have it. You want to check that out if you're in one of those two formats. And if he's got it, he becomes a little more attractive. I and I could find my way to being interested if that's the case, if the price reflected what he did last year. But he's just going outside the top 200 and behind a slew of names I like better. So it just seems to me that he's a player that's got his fans and got his detractors. And I'm among the detractors. I don't know I'm ever going to catch up to the market on him. Um, You know, I I was thinking, I was like, oh, all right, well, maybe maybe he's floating just inside the top 300 and that's where I would be interested. No, he's going nearly 100 picks in front of that. And I don't have any interest in this profile at that cost. Uh, Robinson Chirinos went to Houston. Uh, excellent fit. Uh, credit to bat flip crazy. Friend of the pod on the Torino spray chart in Minute Maid, which looks favorable for a right hand for the right-handed power threat. Of course, we know right-handed power plays well in Minute Maid. Um, he's not going to be in the running for a batting title, but if he can squeeze out a two-third or three-fifths share of that job, he could approach 20 bombs in a good lineup, which will probably be good enough to make him a worthwhile choice if you're punting catcher. Uh, Jan Gomes was traded to Washington. So last time Joe and I talked about Suzuki and how if, you know, he's the primary catcher in Washington, he might have, um, you know, top top 12 type appeal. Well, I think that's out the window with Gomes coming in. And, I, and I'm sort of worried about Gomes in terms of how they're going to split up the playing time between these two. Maybe this becomes the new Brave situation. I mean, you'll remember uh, last year we were saying about how if you would combine Suzuki and um, Tyler... Tyler Flowers in Atlanta in 2017, you would have ended up with like a top five catcher. Uh, This might be that new case. Personally, I would prefer for a fantasy perspective if Suzuki got more time because I think he's made some changes that are interesting and I think he can hit for a good average and provide some pop. Gomes is uh, a player that lacks plate discipline and that really sinks his floor pretty low and all you have to do is go back and look at the two years prior from last year and you can see that it's very easy for Gomes to become like a 215 type hitter uh, and not with outstanding pop 
So I'm I'm probably staying away from this scenario. I mean, again, I don't mind this. I don't mind trying to play in, in a daily format where you've got deep benches and you take the two and you kind of just try and maximize your at bats at the position and hope you know Gomes doesn't sink the batting average that Suzuki gives you. I don't mind that strategy, but for me, I'm gonna try and get something more secure at that spot personally. Okay, so that's gonna move it to my uh, deep sleeper team. Uh, I did this last year. I had a bunch of success with my pitchers. Uh, among them were Patrick Corbin, uh, Trevor Cahill. My hitters were not as good. <laughs> so in terms of my summary thoughts of how of how this particular team worked out, th- this team, the team I'm going to tell you about tonight, I think the staff is much better than the hitters, which indicates to me that the market is soft on the middle and back end of starting pitching. The hitting was challenging given the confines. And those confines are four players with an ADP of at least 250, five players with an ADP of at least 300, five players with an ADP of at least 350, and four players with an ADP of at least 400. And I could not put any prospects in here. So, because the prospects kind of get buried, and that's sort of the cheat code. The idea here is to identify interesting veterans. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you know about um, you know the top end prospects, and you've probably got them circled already. So I don't think we need to identify them uh, for you. This is sort of an idea to identify some interesting names that, you know, you might take at the back end of a very deep draft that you're in, or you might just watch list to start the year. Okay, so, and and in terms of, you know, the the batters, you know, I I, I sort of think the outfield is kind of strong. You're going to see the infield is pretty weak. Okay, so Elias Diaz, 378, uh, you know, I hope the Pirates decide uh, to give this guy a chance. There's been murmurings that they're going to look for uh, a buyer for Francisco Cervelli to give Diaz a, a full-time taste. If they do, it's promising what we saw from Diaz last year. He, he's in part-time duty. He had a 7% walk rate, a 14% K rate, a 2.86 average, and a 4.52 slugging percentage. Uh, the 36.3% hard contact is good, especially with the solid plate skills. I, I think if Diaz gets a full-time job, based upon what he did last year, you could be looking at like a 16 to 18 homer bat, hitting 270 to 280. And, you know, that batting average might even be a little bit conservative because his ex, his expected average, according to X stats, was over 300. So, I mean, yes, the sample size is small enough that there could be some noise in there, and, you know, there's always a risk that Cervelli sticks around and blocks Diaz for the entire year. But at this point, you know, within these confines, Diaz is one of the only catchers that offers that kind of upside where you can get the batting average, you can get representative power. And the lineup in Pittsburgh is constructed in such a way that if he is the primary catcher, when he hits, he's probably going to hit in a decent lineup spot. I don't think they're going to stick him hitting eighth in that lineup with the sort of offensive potential that he displayed last year. I, I think that he'll, he might be higher and might be able to produce some runs and RBIs as well. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman at first base, uh, 337 ADP. After 2017's rebirth, Zimmerman played out about half a season and that paced to 25 homers, a 264 average with just under 100 RBIs if you put him at a full year pace. Zimmerman actually upped his walk rate and brought his K rate down to 17%. The high-quality batted ball authority remained 13.6% on barrels. That's 23rd. 
uh, 92.6% exit velocity, uh, 92.6 mile per hour exit velocity, excuse me. Uh, that's 12th. 97.8 mile per hour fly ball line drive velo was fourth. The launch angle reverted downward, so that's that's troubling. But still, you know, it's in a sea of 250 and 30 homer type first baseman at, at this particular ADP, Zimmerman is one of the few at this price that can put together a 30 homer 300 batting average type season, uh, which in 2017, Zimmerman did just that. So we're not that far removed from it. And if... Harper goes, you know, if Harper's gone, Zimmerman's going to be in a more favorable lineup spot. Yes, he's a health risk, but at 337, that health risk is more than baked in, and the upside is very real. So, I mean, that was a top 40 overall season in 2017. He's going at nearly 340. So, there is real considerable upside, especially at this price. I'm definitely buying uh, Zimmerman at this cost. Jed Lowry is sitting at 281. While not as spectacular as Zimmerman, we only need to go back a single season to find Jed Lowry dramatically exceeding his draft position. Uh, Lowry popped 23 bombs, approached 180 runs plus RBIs. He kept his double-digit walk rate intact. A A decision to pull the ball more allowed Lowry to tap into more of his power. The pull percentage was up 7%. And while you may believe he traded some average for this pop, that's not exactly true. X-Stats indicates that Lowry should have been about a 275 hitter. Uh, put those homers with that batting average and that run production, if he goes back to Oakland, as some suspect he will, uh, you're talking about a player that's a borderline top 100 pick, and he's going close to 300. Zach Cozart is sitting at 469. Uh, he's got three positions in Yahoo, which is extremely important. Last year was dreadful for Cozart, but the injury was the culprit that hampered his production and led to his abbreviated season. With the changes that Cozart made in his breakout season, he could easily be a 20-homer, 6-7 steal guy with a 270 batting average. Now, there's not a ton of upside beyond that, but that could very easily come towards the top or the middle of a lineup that's got some pretty good hitters in it. Uh, You know, uh, you might have heard of this guy, Mike Trout, uh, Shohei Otani also is expected to get a significant number of at-bats. If Kozart's hitting in front of them, he's going to be driven in. If he's hitting behind them, he's going to drive them in. So I think Kozart sort of makes for a very useful uh, utility bench bat. He's going to—he's obviously incredibly cheap at 469 I mean, you can get him for nothing. And uh, I think that he's got some upside, and people sort of are forgetting about what Kozart did in 2017. At short, I took a Ledmus Diaz, uh, 359. He was obtained from the Blue Jays uh, by the Astros and is the candidate to fill the Marwin Gonzalez role for the Astros. At a full season pace, Diaz would have been about a 25 homer bat with the 263 average. That's not fantastic, but a useful one in the middle infield. Add in the positional versatility and improve surroundings in terms of lineup, and you start to see where this could be a sneaky add in deeper formats. On another note... (laughs) <laughs> as if it weren't obvious based on this selection. Shortstop is probably not the position to wait on until the end of your draft. Um, it came down to a choice between Diaz and Orlando Garcia, and I literally changed my mind about six different times. <laughs> I even considered Tim Beckham before he was non-tendered. Uh, it is not the best position uh, to try and finagle you know, a starter out of nowhere, out of dust. 
Um, now, you know, I mean, if I would have put Crawford in, maybe. Uh, but I still thought he was a little bit too much of a prospect for purposes of this list. So at the corner spot, I put Peter O'Brien. So I dug deep here. He's not assured of anything. He's facing a three-way battle at first base with uh, Pedro Alvarez and Garrett Cooper. Now, those aren't the most intimidating competitors, but O'Brien could very easily be a total zero. And hesitated here, but there's really some interesting stuff in a small sample that O'Brien showed. Upon joining the, the Marlins organization, O'Brien exhibited more plate discipline. He walked more and struck out less and was able to carry those skills over to a brief MLB sample where his strikeout rate continued to be sub 30%, which is significant for him. Um, during that sample, just a 25% O swing and a 12.6% swing strike rate. Now, of course, these are really, really small samples, but what I was most encouraged about was the fact that he carried that over from when he joined the organization. Maybe somebody got in his ear at the lower levels and was able to show him something that changed the way he was approaching hitting and he carried it through the rest of the year. Uh, in terms of authority, and this is where he becomes very interesting, uh, among players with at least 40 batted ball events, small sample size, yes, O'Brien was ninth in barrels per plate appearance and had a 46.9% hard contact rate with a sub-10% soft contact rate. The calling card has always been the power. The promising thing is the combination of signs that he might be able to curtail the swing and miss to a respectable level without sacrificing the power and the batted ball authority. And I think there's a non-zero chance that O'Brien may have done just that. Um, and if he has done that, you know, you're looking at a potential 35-40 homer bat. And if he can hit 235 with that, that's totally livable. And, you know, he's got that sort of light tower power that Miami is a dreadful ballpark for hitters. Uh, the power isn't going to be an issue in that ballpark for O'Brien. O'Brien's got the authority to hit the ball out of any ballpark on earth. Um, okay, so in the middle infield, I took Alan Hansen, 436. One time, he was a real prospect. He's bounced around the league since um, being a top prospect with Pittsburgh. I, I and top prospect is a relative term. I mean, he was like a back-end top 100 guy at one point. Similar to Elias Diaz, Hansen's likely not going to have... Uh, Ledmus Diaz, excuse me. Uh, Hansen's likely not to have a full-time job, but will bounce around enough to have value in deeper formats. He may have a whole mess of eligibility even ending into heading into the year, so you need to check that depending upon your game starts, game played format. Uh, he played all over the diamond last year. Uh, he can run. He's got multiple 30-plus steal seasons in his minor league track record, and he can hit for double-digit pop, as evidenced by his 12 career homers and 557 career major league plate appearances. So, I mean, there is 10-30 type upside here. Um, he hasn't exhibited much in the way of patience, but that's not part of the package. Uh, but there's no reason to believe he can't be a useful bench piece, and maybe a little more if he sees full-time at-bats in a world where speed is seemingly so scarce. And, of course, the playing time should be plentiful in uh, San Francisco where they're rebuilding this year. And they're not likely to um, stick him at first base and you know tell him not to run, being that they're going to be a rebuilding club. Uh, more likely than not, they will allow Alan Hansen to run whenever he's on. Uh, Randall Grichuk, 265 ADP. You're probably not surprised to hear the name uh, on this list after I was so adamant about him last year, but when I saw the ADP, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Uh, Grichuk got off to a terrible start, then hit the DL 
Upon return from that DL stint, he was extremely productive. In 385 plate appearances, 23 homers, 271, 319, 553 slash. That's a 35 homer pace with the 270 average. Uh, you know, if you were to just take that and extrapolate it to a full season. Not only that, but Grichuk was hitting in the middle to the top of the lineup from pretty much June on when he started to get hot. And he's likely to return to that role this year. So I think the run production shouldn't be much of an issue. It's not going to be the best lineup, but hitting three, four, or two, you're going to find your way to the run production. Um, there's nothing terribly alarming about that 270 average during that stretch. The BABIP was 311, and the K rate was just 25%. So he could easily do that again. Personally, I project him closer to 260, 255, accounting for either a little bit of regression in terms of the BABIP, which, you know, isn't assured. Basically, just to keep with the fact that Grichuk has generally been a, a hitter that hasn't kept his batting average at a 270 level. Um, that's how I'll say it. The track record indicates to me that he's more of a 250 guy than a 270 guy, but the skill supported the 270 last year. And I'm going to project him for homers of over 30. Um, I think the ballpark plays very well for him. I think the division plays very well for him. And I think had he not come out and been one of the worst players in baseball in April and not gotten hurt in May, he probably would have reached the 30 homer plateau this year. So another name you're not going to be surprised to hear, Franchi Cordero, another guy that seemingly makes his way onto every podcast. Uh, 313 ADP. So speaking of 30 homers, he could do that. I don't want to take too much time talking about Franchi because I've discussed him to death uh, in recent shows. But you know the drill. He's an explosive player, some speed. Ample batted ball authority means power, and he's also the batted ball profile is such that the BABIP should be pretty good and could help carry the problematic strikeout rate. Big ceiling, zero floor here, but that's the sort of player you're looking for at 313. And then Steven Souza, the 340 ADP. Um, I think Souza's 2017 is sort of what you are hoping for from Franchi, but Souza's breakout year fails to buy him any sort of credit with fantasy owners. He 30 bombs, 16 steals, and a batting average that was dragged down somewhat by injury issues that he played through. So, I mean, those numbers could have, the homers, the steals, and the batting average could have been better in 2017 um, had he not encountered, I believe they were hip issues. Um, I think they were either occurred in late July or early August, to my recollection, and that's 2017. Last year was obviously a lost year. Um, the injury problems just sunk him completely. But in a limited 2018, he probably deserved better. He had a 44% hard contact rate, comparable walk and strikeout rates the year before, a higher line drive rate, and I expect that Arizona's going to give Souza an opportunity to rebuild some value before they trade him. I'm willing to take Souza and and bet that he's going to take advantage. Um, you know, and he'll be in, in Arizona. He'll be in a lineup spot that'll probably be favorable for run production. Again, he, he, he lines up probably as the 4-5 hitter uh, if you're looking at that lineup today, being that Pollock is gone and Goldschmidt is gone. So Souza could be a very sneaky pick at 340. And all that he really needs to get back to, you know, a sort of 30-15-250 type player with good OBP is health. Okay, and then now I'm going to talk about Cedric Mullins with an ADP of 350. Across three levels, including the majors, Mullins went 15-23 in terms of homers and steals. That's a that's very nice. Uh, he also exhibited good good discipline and the ability to limit strikeouts at the major league level. Eight point nine percent walk rate, nineteen point four percent K percentage. That's not bad. Uh, Mullins exhibited plus speed with the sprint score of twenty nine point three. 
That's tied with Victor Robles, Lewis Brinson, and Rajai Davis. Flat out, he can run. In all likelihood, Mullins is going to have a job near the top of the Orioles lineup. Um, while not the ideal lineup, not the best lineup to hit lead up for, the volume is going to be there, and the opportunity to run for a bad team is, is palpable. The batted ball authority and mix isn't great, so we're likely looking at a player that's not going to be able to capitalize on having a non-egregious strikeout rate. So, I mean, I think you're looking at another guy that's going to hit around 260. But with an OBP of around 330 or 340 based on the walk rates, uh, he should have ample opportunities to run. And you mix that in with the skill set to hit for double-digit pop and potentially in the mid-teens given the favorable ballpark and favorable hitter division. He's a really nice add at 350 in a world where everybody's complaining that there's no speed. He could be a, 50, a 260, 15, 20 type guy and kick in 80 runs, uh, which is a really, really nice asset at this point. And the final outfielder I'm going to talk about is Steven Duger at 446 ADP. Duger has a similar profile to Mullins in terms of where you expect him to end up, but he's going to get there a different way than Mullins. Uh, Duger has a swing and miss in his game, but he's exhibited consistently that he can post above average BABIPs. He's got more... He's got more speed than power, and but shouldn't be a zero in either category. Uh, he also has a rebuilding team that's probably not going to strap him to first base. So when he does get on, I expect him to be running. Uh, while neither is a sure bet, Mullins and Duger are basically free and could chip in 20-25 steals without being a zero in power and are likely to have the opportunity to play given the fact that their team's are bad, and these are the types of players that they take chances on. So I think that they're both sneaky stolen base sources later in drafts. So now that we're outside of the hitting dregs, let's move to the starting pitchers. Uh, Starting it off, Jimmy Nelson, 266 ADP. Nelson has significant upside, and I think the ADP may be fraudulent. And what I mean is if Nelson starts to throw and the reports are that he's ready to go, I think he's headed up the board and will likely still be a value on draft day, even with the anticipated inflation. Nelson's 2017 may have been forgotten. 349 ERA, 10.2K per nine, just 2.46 walks per nine, a 50% ground ball rate. And you guys know I love the grounders and the keys, so that's a package that I'm really interested in. The team around him is plus. The significant results improvements are supported by the underlying skills, uh, which are tied to a mechanical change. Provided Nelson comes back to health, there's little reason to doubt that he could be a significant value and produce well above this price. Next pitcher is Tyler Skaggs, 280. You should be unsurprised. (laughs) You probably expected to see him on this list. Um, But I couldn't resist leaving him off. He was a borderline ace through the first half, sub-3 ERA, 9-plus K per 9, 2.5 walks per 9 in about 110 innings. This was brought to an abrupt halt by a groin injury. In the games immediately before and after the groin injury, Skaggs had an ERA around 14 with bad skills that really sunk his full season line down to the point where he is now a value. I have Skaggs significantly higher than this and will own him everywhere if he goes anywhere near this price. Colin McHugh, 312, another name that you should probably not be shocked by, but he presents a really nice mix of ceiling and floor at a really good price. At his best, McHugh could be a caper inning starter with a significant workload and post a ERA in the mid-threes. At worst, he's probably a very good reliever that is a lesser version of the shutdown reliever that he was last year. 
With just two healthy starting pitchers in-house, it becomes increasingly likely that the Strohs are going to give McHugh a return to the rotation this year. He also saw an increase in velocity upon the move to the bullpen. He was up to 92. That's the first time in a number of years. Uh, it's not out of bounds to think that McHugh could keep some of that velocity, either from some tweak that he made while in the bullpen, or simply having a fresh arm from throwing less innings last year. If he does that with his breaking stuff, that's really, really good. Uh, McHugh could end up exceeding that mid-threes ERA expectation that I laid out as a ceiling. So, you know, maybe the ceiling is a little bit better than that, provided he carries over the velocity. Matt Strom, 402, similar to McHugh. Strom presents a really good ceiling with a solid floor of a usable deep league middle reliever. Strom has starter stuff and used it to put together a very good relief season for San Diego. But the Padres have come out and said Strom is going to be given the chance to compete for a starting role. And the pub out of San Diego, since they've acquired him, is that they're very excited about his potential as a starter. And it's easy to see why. He's got plus velocity from the left side, a great curveball, and those two things alone could be enough. But he's also incorporated a slider and a change, which both graded out as plus last year. The other plus side of this equation is Petco in an NL West featuring two teams with rebuilding offenses in San Francisco and Arizona. Strom is going to have some cushy matchups in a really good park to pitch in. Um, so even if he doesn't quite carry over the same profile that he has as a reliever, I expect at minimum he'll be useful as a streamer. But I've got higher hopes than that. I, I think that Strom presents probably like top 50 upside, and that's I, I could go higher than that if I was confident that the Padres would let him go in terms of innings. I don't think they'll do that given his injury history, though. Uh, he had knee problems in Kansas City before they traded for him, and he, he's also a Tommy John guy. Um, I forget exactly when he had it in his past. Uh, it was before he made his debut in Kansas City, though. So it's some time ago. He's getting towards the edge of that honeymoon period. So I suspect that they'll ease him in slowly if they do start him. I would say he maxes out around 130 innings. And, you know, it, at that level, he can still be very useful. And you can probably draft him, get the best chunk of that, and then flip him to a less knowledgeable owner. And then they'll eat the shutdown in a strict redraft league, in a keeper league, in a dynasty league. I'm all over strong. I own multiple shares of him. So, you know, you know I'm high on him. And then the last pitcher, the last player we're going to talk about tonight is Caleb Smith, uh, 427 ERA. His season was cut short due to injury, but he put together a pretty good 16 starts, a 10.2K per nine, 3.8 walks per nine, less than ideal, but livable at that K rate, an ERA around four with matching skills. He's an extreme fly ball pitcher with a ground ball rate under 30%. So, I mean, he's got the skill set that suits the ballpark in Miami. Um, you know, you might want to avoid him in bad road parks. You know, like if he's facing the Phillies, you in Philly, you might not want to start him there. Um, the slider is a plus offering. He's got an averageish change that goes with it and a bad fastball, even with good velocity, sitting at 93 from the left side. If Smith can de-emphasize that fastball and utilize his breaker and off-speed pitch more, this is the sort of profile that could take a significant step forward. Now, both command and control are issues, so maybe relying on those pitches more is simply not an option. But it is something to watch for, and it's not going to cost you anything to find out. And even if he doesn't do that, it's still a 10K per 9 profile 
with an ERA somewhere between three eight and four three. So I mean, you can you can live with that level of production, you know, given that K rate in pretty much most formats. You know, I, I think I think he's a pretty good player, and I think he I think he's got some upside, and it, it's just another name that people might lose track of because he got shut down so early last year. Um, so if he carries that stuff over into spring training, I mean, if the fastball velocity is still sitting 93 and he looks good, um, I'm willing to take a shot on him as my last pitcher as well. Okay, that's going to wrap up tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the deep sleepers and the rundown of all the news. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. I believe we're slated to record on December 20th. I'm going to have somebody alongside me. I don't know who yet, but... Um, Thanks for listening, and I'll keep you posted regarding that episode. You can find me on Twitter at PatrickFWL. Thanks for listening again, and we will see you next time.